0: Cat on the tracks He wore the night in his fur Sat on a rung between the rails Tail wisping like smoke As a distant train split the air along its seam Its coming headlight lay down track And placed an opal into each black seed of the cat's eyes Every blink slow as an eclipse. Soon, the white light pinned him, the only drop of night left as vibration turned the rails to mercury. But there was no give in the cat, no flex anywhere but his tail. And for a moment, their roles reversed, as though it were the train Facing the inevitable cat, the end of the line, the world lit up like a page, and the train a sentence before the full stop.
1: Hello and welcome to Two Minute Stories. I'm Chris Nealon. And I'm Mark Pajak. And we've just heard from Mark Pajak, we've just heard Cat on the Tracks and uh, I was itching to talk to you whilst I was listening to you perform that piece because I wanted to know, first of all, is it real? Is this something you really observed or did it come from your imagination?
0: Did I sit there and watch a cat <laughs> as a train came with a notepad? Well, I felt uh, that you were capable of it. <laughs> I'm so glad I give off that impression. <laughs> uh, no, this isn't this isn't something that happened. Uh, I go on a lot of train journeys, yeah. and uh, I, I think a lot of my work comes from a place of two things that shouldn't fit but do, and are changed mm. in in. So I put things in unusual places. So I have a poem about. Uh, somebody putting a bullet in their mouth. Right? I have, I have a, mm. a poem about um, I, I was seeing a cat on on the tracks. So, uh, and I think it makes for a good story because it's in impending danger mm. and there's a sense of build up. Uh, so, yeah, I was on a train one day and I was thinking, what would be unusual to find on a train deck? Yeah. Uh, what would also what what makes me feel mm. scared? Mm. And I and I love animals and I I love a lot my my. Poems put animals or children in danger because I f- feel physically frightened yeah. for them, and that 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 feeling is something I want to convey. A lot of your stuff seems to focus on
1: that—the moment of something awful about to happen, mm. right? And and sort of hangs around in that in that moment, like the moment we talked about before about uh, about the moment of glass almost breaking. Mm. Um, what? Why? What is is it about those kind of moments that attracts you?
0: Oh, uh, I th- I, th- I think having been in many situations where I have been hit and, <laughs> and been threatened to be hit, I've always found the threat much worse. Mm. Um, I, I can remember, I remember being bullied and and, and people, uh, it was always the, the I'll get you after school was much worse than someone coming over and hitting me. Because mm. being hit, you, you always just build it up in your mind so much more. And it's that sense of threat that is so much more powerful Mm-hmm. And if you can step away at the end of your piece and let people's imaginations hit, do the hitting. It's so much more powerful. It'll allow them, give them all the build up and, and step back. And it's it's a technique that people like Simon Armitage use when he's talking about violence. He, he uses a lot of build up poems. Uh, Caroline Duffy uses it. I mean, her wonderful poem. Um, uh, education of Leisure Leisure is all about build-up mm. And uh, Hitcher for Simon Armitage It's all about build-up and, and so is uh, Gooseberry Season And the, these poems build up and build up Towards a moment mm. um, Yeah,
1: Something that I wanted to talk about today Was the power of details The importance of, de- of specific details Of specificity mm. in good writing And that's, that seems that Your pieces are, really Revolve around Imagery. You seem to be a very imagistic writer. Is that right?
0: Uh, Yeah, it's something that's that's been. It's something I I I love in other writers' work. Have you always written like that? Um, Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Mm. particularly when I started to read people like Robin Robertson, who is an an image maker, and uh, and Helen Mort, um, but both of these writers had a huge impact on on the way I approach poetry.
1: There's there's an episode of. uh, revisionist History, which is Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, which is brilliant. And he did an episode that I heard recently about um, country music and why half of America listens to music that is slit-your-wrists depressing about divorce and heartbreak and being left alone, and why half of America listens to, um, what, was this, what was the song? Uh, I think the example he used was Tutti Frutti too fruity. Oh. Rudy. Why why half of America listens to? Shut up. Why half of America listens to uh, sort of happy clappy music like mm-hmm. f- like fun upbeat generally music. Could you give us another example? Uh no. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'll laugh at me. Okay. <laughs> um, Uh, and why half of America listens to really sad, depressing music. And then he branched off from that to look at, I'm just advertising another podcast now. It's much much bigger podcast. Fuck Malcolm Gladwell. (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) Michael? um, Don't don't call the man Michael, please. Um, uh, Yeah, so he branched off from that to, to talk about specificity and how country music is very good for redolent, real, personal, specific detail rooted in place maybe that's maybe that's why country music is so good at specificity because it's very place specific um and and then he compared it to uh wild horses the rolling Stones song and the the broad um um sort of abstract imagery and stereotyped kind of feelings in that song although that song is also based on a, on an intense personal emotion it's about um um, uh, that it was about Mick Jagger's partner. I can't remember who it was now. Um, she was in, she was in the hospital, mm. and he was staying by a hospital bed and saying, "Wild horses couldn't drag me away from your hospital bed." So it's an intensely personal, um, emotional song. Like but uh, if you look at the lyrics, they're they're broad and they're vague. Wild horses couldn't drag me away, you know. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure hi, hi, Malcolm Gladwell's analysis of that song was exactly right because music is much more than just the words. Um, but the words of those of that song, and, and there was a country song that he was comparing it to. The specific detail of the country song was so, when you only look at the words, it was so much more powerful. And um, that's so the specifics, close-up details, seem so uh, important and fundamental to writing. I was reading a Dorothea's short story. Have you read any Nors? No, I haven't. She's a, she's a Danish um, short fiction writer. I think she's a novelist as well. I've only read a short fiction though. She's brilliant. And I read this, this short of hers this morning. And uh, about about halfway down the first paragraph, there's this detail. It's about a teenage girl. Um, at the start of the story, her, her boyfriend has just left her parents' house and she's in her room and she can hear him saying goodbye to her parents and leaving the house. And it has this detail about, about she she could still feel the uh the wetness from his mouth below her nose. Mm. And it's just as soon as that detail emerges, about halfway it takes takes about halfway down the first paragraph for that specific close detail to come up. And as soon as it comes up, you're like Oh, I'm so dragged into the mm. world of this story, and that feeling, the, you can feel the the cool breeze on the wetness above, yeah. above, the, base above the lip. It's so fundamental to good writing, I think. Yeah, um, and I'm not sure why. Why is that, Mark? Tell
0: me. Well, sit back because I have the answer for you. All right. Um Well, and this is the thing. I, I it ties into the idea of the universal is in the specific isn't it yeah. as soon as something becomes more individual more detailed more narrow the wider it appeals mm. because we want to be tricked we want to read something and we want it to think it's actually happening it's going on yeah We're, that that willing suspension of disbelief that the the less effort that the reader has to do to suspend that disbelief, the more real the writing becomes. And that's in the detail. Always yeah. in the detail. Absolutely. Um there there was a wonderful book, uh <coughs> Reading Like a Writer. I can't if, um some somebody prose. They have a great name for a writer. Their second name is Prose, but I Oh really? Yeah. I um but Got you, into the family business then. But this is the whole thing, is there's a whole section on detail. There's a whole section about Crafting sentences. There's a whole set uh, crafting chapters, as you would. And, but there's a whole section just on detail, getting the right detail. Sounds and great. Conveying so much about someone with so little. Uh, so, what's your? What would be your favorite details in in work that I've read? Yeah.
1: Um. Oh, good question. That's, <laughs> I mean, that that detail from the Dortha Noor story leapt mm, out at me. That's fantastic. I love it's that. It's Just hearing it? about that, yeah, it's lovely. She's, she's. A, I think she's, a, she's a terrific writer, um, in translation as well. And it's, it's quite rare, I think, for, for translated work to come across quite as well as hers does. Um, what, what can I remember? What details leap out at me? Um, I think Fitzgerald is quite good at, at detail, actually. Mm. Um, there is a story of his called uh, Three Hours Between Planes." which is about a a guy who's i think he's a widower he's lost his wife and he's in he's got a layover between between planes and he's in his old town and he decides to call up the girl that he was in love with when he was 12 <laughs> and uh he he calls her mother and uh, gets her th- her phone number and he calls her up and introduces himself and says, I'm in town and uh, gets himself invited round. So he goes round to see this girl that he was completely in the, his first love um, and who he obviously kind of he retains that that love, uh, as many people do, I think, for the first people, the first oh, yeah. person that they fall in love with. Mm. Um, and he uh, he remin hangs around with her, and they have a bit of a drink and they get a bit tipsy she's married, but her husband's away and they look through old photo albums and they kind of reminisce a little bit and I think they share a kiss uh and then he says that uh uh he realizes that she thinks that he's another boy with the same first name who she who she had a dalliance with, and it turns out that she doesn't she he was completely unimportant to her. And she realizes that he's this other boy, and gets horrified and asks him to leave. It's very, it's sort of funny and heartbreaking and really true, Um, and it's it's full of really nice, redolent little details.
0: That funny and heartbreaking. That's something that we're going to be touching on later in the show. Yes, we
1: are with our magnificent guest. Who who could we possibly have on the show today, Mark?
0: Oh, um, well, we'll be hearing from. um, Well, firstly, we'll be hearing from um, Emily Oldfield. Uh, who is, I will tell you in a second when her bio loads up. The <laughs> so we'll be hearing from uh, Emily Oldfield, who's who's both a writer and a poet from Burnley, uh, but currently living in Manchester. Uh, her work has been described as weird, wonderful, and uh, pursuing the darker themes, um, whether, whether through poetry or journalism or even place writing as well. Uh, She herself describes her particular interest in connections between place, persona and the body, and the haunted body especially, which sounds really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, Emily is actually currently an editor at Haunt Manchester, uh, a site which seeks to explore the gothic side of the city, Uh, works on PR for Manchester-based record label, Analog Trash, and also writes uh, at I Love Manchester, the Manchester Writing School blog. Louder than War, uh, Bittersweet Symphonies, and is a researcher on the Writing Manchester map. Uh, this year, she has co-organized Foundations Festival 2018, celebrating grassroots alternative creativity in the city and beyond. And all of that really feeds into her work. And you, you, you'll see that that this broad range of everything she has—it's uh, it's the poem that she reads today that idea of, of the, the multiple the many mm. explored in one experience is yeah uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing that later.
1: Yeah she's there's it's not that long ago that Emily was a student in one of my prose classes oh, really? here at MMU and uh, I know a lot of people are very excited about her I think she's an incredibly promising young writer who's mm-hmm. going to have a phenomenal career uh, in the very near future um, and I it's really interesting the the kind of the amount of ideas that go into her work and the performance skills that she's already nailed um yeah, she's 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 going to be be uh, an interesting one to watch mm. i think but who's well, joining uh, well our
0: sec- our second guest mm. is uh is is not only currently having an exciting career and going on to having but has come from an exciting career as well mm. we we have keith hudson who has written for Coronation Street and many other well-known comedians, and his poetry has been widely published in journals internationally. Uh, Competition successes include The Troubadour, the York Literature, uh, and the Wordsworth Trust Prizes. Uh, Keith's debut pamphlet, Routines, was published in 2016 by Poetry Salzburg, uh, where he is now the co-editor. He's been invited to go on board and co-edit. And uh, his, uh, his other... Poetry pamphlet, pamphlet which was Troopers was a, uh, a laureate's choice and chosen by Caroline Duffy, mm. uh, and and I, uh, his 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 debut full length poetry collection is uh, which has the best name for any debut collection I've heard in a long time. It's called Baldwin's Catholic Geese, <laughs> and it's coming out next year in March. Uh, 2019 in March uh, uh, with I knew Blood Axe.
1: I knew you were going to say Baldwin's Catholic Geese when you did you when, know, I just felt
0: you could just feel that coming
1: on I just knew it oh, I just it was on the tip of my tongue before you said it really
0: <laughs> <laughs> no um, <laughs>
1: so we've got we've got a young poet uh, and a veteran comedy writer mm-hmm. on the show today yeah. what an interesting mishmash we have. What an interesting show
0: this is going to be, Mark. Well, it's going to be fantastic. I really look forward to it. And and shall we get things started? Let's
1: get on with the show. Who should we start with? Should we start with Emily? Please yeah, go
0: on. Let's go. Let's start with Emily.
1: I think we should. Let's hear from uh, Emily Oldfield.
2: Milestones. You're on a running route through a northern town you were told you were born in. Stand near the front, Nor your lungs, the instructor says like some friendly gesture. You picture them, two penciled holes beneath paper before you begin. How long before you will see them projected onto a screen is not yet known, only now the distance between heel and toe becomes apparent. You feel the uneasiness of gravel shift beneath your instep, wonder where the rain on your face first started. They say the north is made of stronger stuff, but you don't know what that means. Picking up speed by the park where they did you in for not looking girl enough, got you on your knees to see your own blood. But now it's in your ears as you take what they call the long way round. At first a child into open arms or playing the game and not wanting to be found, you cross concrete, cobbles, tarmac, shame... There is something in your vision, perhaps it is him, who says see you later and then never again. As a question comes but the crowd grows and you're already out on the top road. The slam, slam, slam of your footfall is a language you throw against the houses watching you in lines. The lane you once called yours now reclaimed by different routines and the raw bite at the back of your throat when you try to breathe. It's like the town is cut in two with a plastic knife from the fryer up with the shutters down most of the week and a colour cord that comes without asking. In the back of your throat you can feel the acid, like the holes bubbling under the flyover way. your feet keep crossing. This is what it is to resist. This is what it is to be chased at first like it means something and then just as much as of a task as everything else and the thumping, thumping, thumping of your heart at the bend in the road where you want to know, want to know, want to keep going past the ward where you watched the wall and the office where you lost your spark like the insignia of new decoration. The football scarves are in windows as you take on the streets you wouldn't dare even at dusk. The sky smells different round here. You wish you had someone to run to, someone to ask in, ask them why it is you don't understand your body as you press it harder into the concrete.
0: Just wow! We've just heard that piece, and it's uh, and I'm still feeling the effects of it. I'm still feeling the the rhythms of it all the way through, and rhythms and of, of course it's incredibly important to that. The people listening won't, well, of course, won't know. But while you were reading that, you were. Conducting with your hand as I it was. Don't a,
2: think I was even conscious of. Oh,
0: that. I was. I was watching it as, yeah. it, as you were doing it. It was, and it was just hypnotic. The whole poem and everything. But but there there is a real strong musicality to it. Was was music important to its inception when you were when you were writing it?
2: Yeah, it's interesting actually because I hadn't practiced writing to music much before. I often write in quite quiet conditions, um, and it was during a period of. Struggling with like productivity, I guess what people call writer's block, though I don't like to attach a term to it because it's so subjective to the person why they might be struggling to write. But um, at the time, my tutor was Andrew Macmillan, who was brilliant. And he um, sat like the tutorial set down in a room and he said, for any, he said, writing to music can be, you know, a great way to unlock new avenues of your thoughts, you know, so to speak. And I thought, well, let's, you know, let's see what happens. And he put on the um, Adagio for Strings, a Samuel Barber track. Mm. And um, it's just how it kind of builds. It's that like, sense of accumulation of like, and I just thought of like pressure building within a person and like tension building and then being released. And um, that reminded me, and it that momentum, it kind of all came together in my mind as like, a poem about running and about pushing your body through different environments. And um, that's where I kind of took it and just like a big stream of, it started off as a stream of consciousness and I kind of just tailored it from there really.
0: Mm. And and it goes through so many places yeah. as well, like a runner as well. So I think
2: that's, it's that kind of sense of taking in multiple landscapes I Think as a runner. It, and I guess you can empathise as well. It's, um, mm. you know, it's a great, opportunity to cast your perspective across so many different places in one journey Mm. so opening multiple journeys
0: there are so many writers who are runners now, particularly um what do you think it is what do you think the
2: connection is i guess it's that sense of and i think it's similar for me with trains to find trains really inspiring because you're in no set place you're in no fixed location you're passing through you're surveying and I think that's a great like perspective to inform like writing
0: mm. and mm. There's, the, yeah, there's that rhythm of the train as well yeah with...
2: and that rhythmic yeah quality and mm-hmm. I I think when I write I'm conscious of the rhythm of what I'm saying like what I'm saying it's always I can hear the voice feeding into like rhythms in my head and that's what I have to get down I think
0: do you think there's a difference between the pieces that you've you've that have come from train journeys or come from car journeys or come from running that, that do you think there's a difference there or are they all very similar?
2: I wouldn't say the, I wouldn't say they're similar, I'd say the rhythms are kind of informed by, I'd say more the mood and if there's a sense of panic or a sense of, I think with milestones, I think it's more of the sense of something like something brewing, something accumulating, mm-hmm. something getting bigger and bigger and manifesting and manifesting and, and um because the running was inspired by when I was running at a particularly bad time and um mm. it's that sense of like accumulation. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a definite, there's a definite weight to it yeah. as well. And I know it's such a great title, Milestones Thank as well. Thank you. Give, give that idea of progression. Yeah. But also reminds me of Milestones. Yeah. Is that something you were thinking of? Yeah, or, yeah. That's
2: that sense of like, yes, weight. Mm-hmm. And I like that you, yeah, that you've noticed that. I mean, I just thought like a run, you know, we associate it with um, almost like freedom. It has connotations of fr- like being freed or like escape. But like at the same time, for, for me, it was like a negative cycle that I was trapped into, and um, I wanted to try and convey that as well. so mm-hmm. yeah
0: so you're talking about overcoming and then the, and a and the big thing in this is overcoming writer's block. Yeah. also overcoming cycles yeah. um, or overcoming the wall that you yeah. find as you run as well. Uh, do you think that that's important for writers that there, there, there is an obstacle that through writing they need to overcome.
2: I don't think it has to be, that has to be the, like the precedent for writing, Mm. but I think, and even at the time I wasn't actively conscious that this was going to be a writer's block relief kind of Mm. poem or a overcoming poem, you know, and I think a lot of writers when they sit down, they just, they have a, often a particular idea or a theme or a thought pattern in the head that they're then trying to like open up and open outwards and in the course of that and after it being written you then become conscious of all the other aspects of your life that have fed into it and the frustrations that you've managed to relieve by doing that but I don't think at the time I was conscious of it being anything like that I was thinking of my mind I think my mind at the time was on running through Burnley where I'm from and just thinking of how the landscape opened outwards. And yet I felt like I was collapsing inwards. Mm. So it was this weird sense of tension. And I thought, how can I put that into a poem?
0: So there was never, you never sit down to go, this is what I'm going to do. It's no. just uh, like going for a run. It's about where it takes you. Mm. Is, that, is that right?
2: I Yeah, I think so. I think I like to be surprised when I, and I don't, I don't, I think a lot of creative people do like to be surprised when but and that's the added you know wonder of writing but equally some people don't like surprises you know just and um, there's no objective way of writing a poem you know it's whatever works for you I think and I think that's what Andrew encouraged by putting on that piece of music there was no objective way of responding to it it was just because some people didn't write anything at all at the time but then took the experience away and did something with that instead Mm. and yeah, I think that expresses it for me.
0: Well, your 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 poem is certainly surprising. It's absolutely wonderful, Thank and, and just and just leaving you with a, a like, I've still got it running through my head. Yeah, um, and and particularly there were there were moments of it of surprise uh, in the details. I found yeah. there's that the distance between the heel and the toe, talking about that, and that yeah. just made it it made this huge landscape come very very. Very close, very, were were details like that important? Were you trying to pick out the details?
2: I think so. Um, Like I said before, when you're running, there's often like a wide landscape opened out to you Mm. or a sense of things beyond you, but then you're you're actively conscious of your own body within it, you know, your own human form, like pushing through it. And I wanted to kind of bring both of those together because, um... Yeah I just thought that with, with running that sense of like again tension of like the heel and the toe, the the sense of a starting point and the starting point and the point you return to is always your body and I think that's and that's what you carry around with you, you know, after. And um because it's a poem also about um like eating disorders. Mm. Um or that's that's a theme that's, you know, for me that I I covered in it. Um, I think that sense of consciousness of your own body and that kind of like painful consciousness, that's why some of the imagery I think is quite striking or like, you know, it ha- it makes a quite a hard impression because, yeah, there are juts and angles and it's meant to, it's meant to hit you, I think.
0: Yeah, that acid in the back of yeah. the throat, that's one that really stayed with me. Yeah. And you know i and there and there's also a way that you performed it uh there was a wonderful moment when you talk about the breath catching at the back of the throat and then you took a breath Yeah. and it just had a wonderful i you've this is um this is a piece it, i've read it uh, and it works wonderfully on the page but you really bring it to life in performance how how long have you been performing it now
2: um i've never had that much confidence as a performer um to be honest and when people suggested the idea to me of reading my poems allowed it strange because when I have done it live people have been like oh how long have you reading for, been reading for you know that was great and um, but I, it always comes as a massive surprise to me because I always, I always wrote in quite a private sense I guess I never thought I don't know it's because I never thought it was any good or I just I never wanted my poetry to feel like it was indulgent or it was referring back to me in a way that I just I know that I always wanted to write and to express that but I never thought that I as a person could embody it so to actually do both of those things and to read aloud to people and for them to get something from it that means a massive amount but it always came as but that's another like we were talking about being surprised by poems and having those shocks I think that came as a shock to me because I never thought that I would really read my stuff to people.
1: That was Mark in conversation with Emily Oldfield. And now we're going to hear from Keith Hudson.
3: The Audience, in memory of Les Dawson, 1931 to 1993. I'd never met someone who was no taller standing up than sitting down. So near the floor and lacking form, your legend could have been... The man without a chassis. Little wonder it was hard to find you in the theatre bar, plonked inside a lady's circle, being treated to your Cosmo small-piece repertoire. Between the smut and shrieks, I introduced myself. Bloody hell, you're big. Bloody hell, I shot right back. You're not. A dozen powdered faces froze. ''Mine's a double scotch,'' you slurred, then turned away. And so did I, thinking, ''Fuck this.'' But reappeared with a drink you didn't thank me for. ''Les, this was not what I'd expected when your agent liked my sketches and said, ''Meet him at the Palace, Manchester.'' I'd pictured post-performance bubbly in your dressing room. Chuckles as you loved my lines. Slaps on the back and... Genius is to a great relationship. Instead, I'd got a twat half-cut in public before curtain-up who took my bundle like a summons. Did Mr Ten Percent suggest we'd have time to plough through this? Another scotch. And put it on the tab, you twerp. When I returned... Your groupies had all gone to take their seats. You pinched a cigarette and slumped into a grumble about how Bob Monkhouse hated you landing blankety-blank. He coveted that show. Still does. The suntan sack of shite. Then, softer. Sorry, son. I'm not myself. The missus. But your punchline was... She's not got long And nothing mattered But to hold her hand Trouble is I love that girl Still Where there's life We almost hugged Then you had to push off To do your stuff I hoped you could use mine From far away You said Nothing's impossible
1: So it's uh, it's very it's always been really interesting to me. Whenever I've met you before, and whenever I've seen you perform, the uh, the synthesis of comedy and poetry together, or even just someone who's rooted in comedy, then moving into poetry. But is that what happened? Did you start in comedy and then shift into poetry?
3: No, actually, I didn't. Um, when I was a very young man, um, age twenty-one, I had what were then called. Booklets. I had a booklet of poetry published, they're called pamphlets now, mm. but um, a, a press called um, Outpost Publications published a pamphlet of mine, Howard Sargent, who was a lovely man who encouraged a lot of um, writers. Uh, he got the MBE for services to literature, actually. Mm. Um, after that... Uh, So that was very exciting to have, you know, my own little kind of... There were only 12 poems in it. It was a very slim volume, a small thing, but mine own. And um, then I carried on writing poetry, got in some journals and things, but I joined an Amdram society Hmm. and sketches, panto, one-act plays sort of hijacked me. Hmm. And um, that... Reignited a love I had for particularly gentle northern comedy. I had an uncle who, when I was very young, used to take me to see a lot of performers in the now extinct empires, grands, and hippodromes of the north. Mm. And um, we saw music hall performers in the twilights of their careers. I was too young to appreciate them, but something, something almost by osmosis seeped in. And I loved these people. I loved the warmth that they generated, the laughter, the feeling of community, that stepping across the footlights mm. and engaging with an audience who were just like them. Yeah. You know, there weren't really celebs in those days, e- even then, you know. Mm. There were people who, um, reflected back the lives that sort of ordinary working-class people were living, but in a very witty and clever way with great timing. Mm. And so that reignited, joining the Amandram Society reignited that and then I got writing for Coronation Street and Comedians, mm. but continued to write poetry, but just didn't send it off anywhere until mm. about five years ago. Do you...
1: Do you think of yourself, of yourself as someone who writes funny poems? Is, is, is comedy an important element of your poetry?
3: Humour's an important um, element of my poetry. Mm. Comedy, not so much. I know that a lot of my poems, people very kindly say, are very funny. Yeah. But I, 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 I hope I'm at least I'm trying to do more than that. I'm trying mm. to distil the essence of these people who I write about, um, to uh, say something about, um, for one, to, uh, it sounds too general to say society, but to to look at life through their lens, really, mm. and to try to make that um, relevant to people um, living today who may not have heard of many of these characters because a lot of them are mm. from the 1800s anyway that, that I, I have been... Recently, writing about. Mm. So, yeah, humour is really important to me because I think it gives people a hook into the poem. Yeah. And it's, ent- you know, I'm an entertainer. Yeah. I consider myself, I don't write um, comedy scripts for anybody anymore. Mm. Um, I consider myself a poet, if I may say that. Mm. But first and foremost, you may. I consider myself an entertainer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Which is. I, I don't think that many poets would say the same thing. No, no, would they? No. Um, I, a lot of I I think, a lot of, a lot of poetry that that has a humorous aspect, um, uh, would usually be more uh, probably more performance poetry than page poetry. I would say yes. Um, but but also, um, if if it's if it might tend to feel disposable and throw away yes. and that it's it's the main benefit of it of it there is is for the pleasure that it it gives to the crowd in performance yes um, and that it doesn't have that the pathos sitting alongside the comedy yes. but i think the same thing for comedy i think a lot of comedy that feels disposable and throw away doesn't have a, a dark element sitting in it nestling mm. alongside all the laughter for me anyway i, I know people who have very different opinions on what comedy should be um, but I remember Kurt Vonnegut writing about um, how uh, when he was writing for some uh, TV show, yes. which I don't think he ever said what TV show this was, but I remember him saying he was on the staff for, for a TV show mm. and in every episode they would try and fit into this, uh, this sitcom uh, a character dying mm. or a reference to a character dying yes, so that the theory being that the audience would be hit with this kind of heft, yes. that the comedy would be all the better yes because there was this pathos nestling alongside it yes what, yes what do you think
3: about that well humor definitely illuminates um tragedy misfortune it always has done you know look at laurel and hardy for instance mm. um when i was a little boy watching those old films um of, of theirs on on the telly which were even old then <laughs> uh, i got quite upset because i used to think to myself oh no the the, the rain's falling on them oh no he's duck underneath a pond with a grand piano on him, and it yeah. used to it used to upset me. And he's making that terrible uh, face again. And he's making that terrible face. Yeah. And so, sort of, you know, the the old cliche of comedy and tragedy being sort of um, just two sides of the same coin is yeah. is very true. But what I particularly, when I started writing the sonnets in particular about old music hall performers. What I began to find as I researched them was that they led pretty awful lives, most of them. Um, yeah. They led quite short, often not wealthy. Um, you know, they, they, they certainly weren't in the lap of luxury. They were unhealthy. Um, they, they, they didn't have homes of their own. They were yeah. always on the road. Like a lot of stand-ups today. Like a lot of stand-ups today. Yeah. But what they also did was they... Um, they were able to to go on stage and in 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 in, in a, a very, very short space of time deliver a set. Now that attracted me because it reminded me of a sonnet, a self-contained little set mm. called a sonnet. Um and I'm quite a formalist. Clearly, the poem I've I've just read about Les yeah. isn't a sonnet, but I love the combination of Um, conciseness and economy Um, and if I try and get into that not biography but the essence of a person and to actually demonstrate or to communicate um, you know sometimes the bloody awful time they had in their lives but to also bring in their routine Mm -hmm. which was very funny or even bring in a routine of my own which hopefully is is funny, um, simply through the writing. So it, it, it's it really interests me this this combination of of of, of, of lightness and darkness mm. that you can get within a short piece. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Was it is it all true? They're not all true. No, no. <laughs> is, is this one
1: about Les? Is it?
3: That's all true. All true. That's all true. I sensed that yes. it probably was. It is. Yes, I was a young um script writer yeah. trying to make my way I was about 25 26 and I'd sent a load of um sketches to his agent like you do hmm. on the off chance but I had an agent then at the time Roger Hancock who was the brother of the late great Tony and he sort of it's <laughs> a
1: good connection to have, yeah
3: I was lucky to get him um he sent a covering letter as well And that's why Les's agent sort of bothered to read the sketches, really, Mm. and then asked me to go along to the Palace Theatre in Manchester Mm. um, where Les was appearing as Nurse Ada in uh, Babes in the Wood in Panto. And that's when I first met him, and that's when this particular story occurred. Yes, Mm. yes. And he was in a bad way at that time. His, Mm. His first wife was just dying, he hated leaving her. He lived in St. Anne's. He used to go home every night after the show. He was drinking a lot, smoking even more. He used to joke he only smokes between meals. He has forty dinners in a day, you know. <laughs> um, he was he, he was not he was not a well man. Um, and it was really because A he had um a predilection for sort of not being a well man for not looking after himself, but his wife being in such um, a, a, a terrible state of health, near death, um, made him turn to other solace even more, really, at the mm. time. When she died, he was devastated. But then he met his second wife, Tracy, with whom he had a baby. and um, Oh, well, wow, advanced age. He was, yes. He 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 would have been in his in his mid fifties then. Oh, okay. Yeah. She was in her late twenties. Um and um he had a wonderfully happy um latter few years of his life before he died of a heart attack in mm. ninety three. A lot of them die of heart attacks. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, that kind
1: of life. <laughs> yeah.
3: But bless him, he had um you know he had a lovely time hmm. having gone through the mill really who else did you
1: did you get to work with after that i know you've worked with I, some interesting
3: I, people i i was a jobbing scriptwriter, um comedy sketch writer so i wrote for quite a few people um sometimes sort of just adding additional material sometimes within teams um Back in the Stone Age, I wrote for Frankie Howard um, yeah. when the Student Union um, set, or the Oxbridge set actually, had sort of taken him up. He had, he, he, he had a lot of revivals and comebacks, Frankie Howard. He was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> but in the um, late 80s, early 90s, um, students started taking an interest in him. They called him Alternative, which made him laugh. <laughs> And they kind of went along to his shows in the student union halls, um, I think um, originally to laugh at him, but mm. they ended up laughing with him and realised that he yeah. was a consummate performer. Um, I wrote for... He, my... he had a hell of a presence, didn't he? Oh, a hell of a presence. Every single thing that he did on stage, every... If you remember his act, it seemed quite spontaneous. Yeah. Um, he'd sort of have a lot of ad-libs in it or sort of um, seemingly ad-libs anyway he would generate laughter by telling someone to stop laughing. Yes. He'd go, now stop laughing, (laughs) and then they'd start laughing, and that's how he would generate
1: that laugh. And he'd keep the laughter bubbling along with just a little, like, a a noise. Yes. And a a look.
3: and Lots of sort of um, little ticks, lots of stammers and stutters, lots of hesitations, um, lots of sort of... uh, And then
1: him bursting into a little laugh every now and then and and stifling it. Yes, yes. No, no.
3: So you know his act. It 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 was it was gloriously spontaneous, but it wasn't. Mm. Every single thing that Frankie did was scripted, and mm. he used to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. Ah, every jot and tittle, every pause, every hesitation, every ad lib, every engagement with the audience, mm. was scripted to a T, mm. which made him a consummate performer.
1: Well, that's very. Uh, uh, you seem like a very. Uh... Uh, experienced and like a consummate performer, to me, you uh, you have a this you have a you're a big guy and you have a big guy kind of presence when you're on the stage. I
3: can bully uh, them into laughing. Yes, yes you can. Yes,
1: <laughs> yes. So uh, tell me about your your experience with performing
3: and how you approach it. Well, it's funny, really, because when I was younger, I had a dreadful stammer. I, it can still come back sometimes um, un, under stress. It's amazing how many
1: poets have that.
3: Yes, a a lot of poets Mm. have um, sort of problems with some element of the speech. But when I was a a boy and even when I was a young man, I really suffered from a stammer which would ambush me. It would take me by surprise. Mm. And so what did I do? Um, Being the masochist that I am, you know, I joined an amateur dramatic society. I remember sitting in this read through they want I, I was going to work backstage really. I just wanted mm. to be involved in in theater um because I had this love of performance that my uncle had instilled in me, but i thought well i'll I'll join sale nomads, which was the amdram society mm. and i'll uh, at least you know I can work backstage um I can be involved and I was asked to sit in. Um, in an audition to read a part um, for somebody else who was auditioning, you know, to read the other part. And um, I I didn't want to, but they said, oh, come on, Keith, you've got to get involved. You've got to sort of make a start, Um, um, try your hand at acting. And I knew, I damn well knew that this stammer would would surface, you know, and it did. And it was it was mortifying i used to get to the same part in this dialogue and and just come to a grinding halt and i couldn't say i can't remember what the word was now i think it's been sort of erased from my memory by yeah, you know bad experience but i couldn't get past it and the producer of the play was getting more and more annoyed. I could tell by the look on his face because this idiot they'd got in from the bar to <laughs> actually, you know, read in, ruining my play. Yeah, and um, there was this stream of really attractive young women who were auditioning for the other part, and that made me feel even worse. Yeah, you know, because sexy it ain't to be stammering over a particular word. Generally ev- every not. Time. It's generally no,
1: not it, thought of as the sexiest no, thing. No, it's
3: not in the top five sexy things. What I did is. I began through almost sheer willpower. My wife would be interested in this because she's a speech and language therapist um, and we, we've, we've spoken about what causes stammering. Nobody knows. you know. It's not a, it, it's not a physical manifestation of something. It's, it's yeah. a psychological thing. Yeah. But I began to learn how to take a deep breath and say a line slowly on the breath coming out. And to keep calm and carry on. (laughs) Um, And I hammered that into myself. I learnt it and learnt it and learnt it in my bedroom. But at the same time, I was being inspired because, you know, Amdram gets a bad reputation. Sometimes, rightly so, I've seen some (laughs) dreadful Amdram where you come out whistling the scenery. You know, (laughs) I've I've seen some awful musicals. But I've also seen some... Absolutely brilliant performances by amateur dramatic performers, you know. And Sail Nomads was was very, very interested in um, um, farce, in gentle comedy, character-led drama. Mm. And I watched some wonderful performances, Mm. um, which inspired me to, I wanted to write for these people, yeah. you know, I wanted to write, which was really arrogant because they were sort of doing wonderful Alan Ayckbourn plays, um, for instance, one week and then say, you know, the next week they'd do a Chekhov or something. And yeah. I was there as a 20, 21-year-old yeah. thinking, I can write for these, yeah. I can write for these I writers. can do Chekhov, off. Yeah, yeah, I can do Chekhov, <laughs> yes, yeah. So... I started writing sketches. It's just people sitting around being miserable. I can do that. I can do that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I can go even better. I can give them a little chuckle now. Exactly, as well. I'll add in a punchline. But I, um, I started writing sketches and then I started appearing in them with these people. They were very kind to me. They let me produce them as well and everything. They could mm. see I was keen and interested. Mm. Um, so performance, yeah. And I've, I have stood in the wings and watched people like Les Dawson, Michael Barrymore, Frankie mm. Howard, Eric Sykes, Jasper Carrot. I have watched them. I won't say work an audience because that's too cold and too technical. I have watched them engage an audience, hold an audience, mm. love an audience, Ken Dodd. Yeah, um, yeah I've watched these people and... I think I've learned a bit from them. I am not a natural performer, but I've learned my own personal performance style. Do you think they were natural performers? I think that um, they... Well, I know that Michael Barrymore wasn't a natural performer mm. um, because he was a very, very... Well, he's still alive, isn't he, Michael? Um, but when I saw him at the Willows... Um, club, a nightclub in Salford, when I first met him, um, he told me in his dressing room afterwards that he isn't a natural performer, that he's incredibly nervous. Mm. But he actually built those nerves into his act, so he became on edge. And ah, that, yeah. if you remember his act, he, it was a manic act. It was completely manic, completely on edge, mm. sweating buckets. Yeah. And so he built that into his act. Yeah. So I think that they were natural performers in that they had the ability to actually take their character peculiarities and build them into their act. They had a burning desire to perform, Hmm. coupled with, quite often, a severe sense of insecurity. Yeah. Tony Hancock, for example, was, was the prime one. He couldn't understand why, what it was about him that made people laugh. He couldn't understand it, and the more which he tried,
1: is which is funny in itself, which <laughs> is
3: funny in itself, and yeah. the more he tried to analyse it, the more desperate he got that he would lose it. Uh, he, 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 uh, Golden Simpson un, 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 understood exactly what it was about him. And we all know as soon as we hear him on the radio or see that lugubrious face with its poached egg eyes and the hangdog expression and that perfect delivery, we know why he's funny. Yeah. He didn't. Yeah. Remark. And that, it just, that
1: just seems like a key part <laughs> of that whole persona. Like that guy doesn't yeah. know why. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
3: And if he did, it maybe it wouldn't work. But I. I do enjoy performing. Mm. I, I I really do enjoy it. You know, I open a fridge door and I'll tap dance. Really, uh, <laughs> I, I where's don't, the fridge? <laughs> I I I love it. I love that connection with an audience. Yeah, um, and I suppose I've developed my own my own style, which is mm. a hybrid. I think of people I've seen nowhere near as good as them, hmm. but it's uh, it's okay for a poet.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes yes it is. <laughs> well maybe that's a key part of it the uh enjoying it and 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 loving the audience and appreciating them and and giving out that sense of of happiness to be there. Yes. and and not trying to please them or i hope they like me, you know, that's not going to work. I think well
3: you've got me. to be yourself. Uh, you've got yeah. to be yourself but kind of supercharged, really. Yeah. You know and um, sometimes, I, uh, whether it's a case of loving the audience or thinking, you're going to enjoy this, you bastards. <laughs> you know, yeah. you have to be a bit combative as well, really. Yes, that's yes. The, I'll take that one. Yeah.
1: All right, thanks very much for coming in, Keith, and thanks Thank you. for um, uh, giving us a,
3: a personal view of Les Dawson. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Awesome. Thank you, Keith.
1: So, uh, so how, how are we going to end this show today, Mark? What are we going to talk about? Who knows? There's a list. So, what, what,
0: what an incredible show it's been as well, and 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 it been lovely. Well, I, there's something like starting with with um, with the poem I read. It was that 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 whole idea of being caught caught in the the spotlight mm. of, of the train, and then we went into these. Wonderful pieces. that were not only well performed, but then we had these incredible discussions about performance. Yeah, and and it, I, I love that that's rolled on. And 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 when we'll, we'll be hearing your piece later, there's a, there's a, there's a thing about watching and, and 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 viewing things and things like that, and the idea of of, of sort of bouncing off that. I really really loved what particularly uh, what Keith was saying about uh, love your audience. Yeah, really loved that. That's, um,
1: that seems important, I think. Mm,
0: yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and it, uh, Keith said something and Emily both, they they both said something um, that it, Emily put it, you, you've got to f- feel your piece. You've got to, mm. you've got to have some connection into, and, and then everything else doesn't really matter.
1: Yeah. And, that's, that sincerity. And, yeah. And that, uh, that certainty, maybe mm. that certainty that I know what I'm saying mm. is the, is the way I'm saying it. Yeah. I know that there's nothing that your response can do to change my knowledge that this is how
0: it is. Keith had a wonderful way of describing that. He was saying that you've got to be yourself, but on un- what supercharged.
1: Yeah, your supercharged self, yeah. which is ab- absolutely right. It's true. Mm. Yeah. You, 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 there is in any kind of performance, you've got to maximise certain things. You've got to perform. Mm. It's not just being yourself, but at the same time, it has to be true to, true to your essence. Unless that's too wanky, a thing to say, which I think it might be. I well, might have versed into wank then well, <laughs> I think I did I can I uh, tell from, from the live I was, I was, I was ladies try and gentlemen to I that. have version into wank <laughs> we you shall know, end the podcast before we go no.
0: the, well, well I mean that would be a great title for a podcast Verged <laughs> <laughs> <Burst> into <laughs> wank
1: <laughs> VIW with V-I-W. Chris Nealon and Mark Bajak
0: <laughs> oh god <laughs> uh no mark no 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 i'll, I'll make it a collection title we'll okay yeah um yeah uh, uh and we've had i think everybody who's come on to this show i, I particularly poets i think because poets mm. performance is part of it mm. The the whole idea that it is an oral art mm. uh however because you are a prose writer mm uh would you say it's it's just as important or is there a different importance in prose with performance
1: um well, I am by no means an expert performer um but I think that i think that exactly what emily was talking about this the sincerity the certainty that what you're saying is true i think is very is very important um for pros I, well I, there's a lot of truth in what both of them were saying the, the um amplifying certain elements of yourself is very important for performance um being a, a warmth of feeling towards your audience I think is important I think there's a, a um I mean Keith was talking a bit about preparing and preparing and preparing and 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 um you know the most improvised stuff being rigorously prepared and we we were talking about that before mm, yeah. um and i i'd certainly think that can work for me i i like to go the other way and i like to not prepare or uh, to to have a sense of what it's going to be and then just trust that um you're going to be interesting and trust that follow your interest and your instinct and have it be a spontaneous sort of amplified conversation. And I found that when uh, performances have gone well for me, um, that's been a feature of the bits in between the reading. And then when it comes to reading, I like to, I like to go small and suck the audience in and go towards sincerity and quietness and get really close to the mic and read slowly and put spaces between the words and really feel it and look at them in the eye and say, this is, this is real. This is, i i I know what I felt when I was writing this. And I, I know there's nothing you can say that's going to convince me that that's not real. And I'm doing it for you to see it. You can like it or not. You know, that feels important to me.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely intrigued and I think that we should probably hear you put those into those tenants into practice. Do you think I should Well yes yeah, so, uh, so yeah let's 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 hear you read something.
1: All right well yes, it's my turn to close the show, isn't it so uh, so uh, here I am closing the show. The punks are all crying at Toy Story 3. The punks are all crying at Toy Story 3. It's the way they escape from the daycare center the leaving behind of childhood. Woody's hat is a symbol of their youth, and just look at the flames in the incinerator. The punks are all crying at Toy Story 3. It's the grandkids, see, banana splitting on the carpet, and the memories, all those vinyl and VHS memories, of nights in Ford Escorts, of Sunday mornings that bring the dawn in, of carting child one to and from the clinic. The punk remembers the flash of the M6 northbound, the cassette of raw power getting tinny in the red, spilled hairs of baccy in the footwell. The punk remembers the baby's head, soft as antler fuzz, and warm as a sunlit moon in the converted back room, draughts under the front and back doors, and Ribena and beans for tea. The punks are all crying at Toy Story 3, and why not when you've razzed out all your fury years back and grown demonstrably long in the tooth, and your eldest is talking of council tax bans, and the grandkid is pouring the ducked round neck of your t-shirt. Spill out those memories, make water. The early 80s squat digs memories, the V's up at dullard passers-by memories, the infected kidney memories, the woking pub gig glass brawl memories. The kids have transitioned, meaning redacted. No place in this new world for skid row ideologues. No values for the sold out to sell out. And didn't Tom York howl, has the light gone out for you because the light's gone out for me? It's the 21st century. It's the 21st century. And I've seen it coming. I've seen it coming. And there's no Joy Division on Granada TV. And the used DVDs sell online for 1p. They stack like canyons into infinity. The punk got knocked up when she was 19. And the label went bankrupt in 93. The kid worked in telesales for a summer or three to pay for a media studies degree, got a job for the council, met Bethany, made a grandkid. surprised them at Christmas, Googled their symptoms, arranged CBT. And now Woody's escaping and childhood leaving and the grandkid is tugging and bum-warming their knee in the strobe of the lights from the Christmas tree, which is boxed in the attic, their childhood tree, from back in Antrim, when Mum was alive. So the punks were all crying at Toy Story 3, and no one survived to uphold whatever the fuck it was they were upholding. Maybe it was all just gas anyway, immaturity, abused childhoods. Maybe there was nothing really there, maybe selling out isn't a thing. Advertising, mainstreamism, the voice of the state, the harm continuation, the mediocreing of souls, the banalization of everything, who says these were ever worthwhile considerations? You? Who are you? Longtooth? Grandpa? Grandma? No one even buys music anymore. No one buys music anymore. No one owns music anymore. No one buys music anymore. All there is is, see, all there is is, look inside, all there is is the real estate of your heart. So sit there on the sagging sofa, grandkid on knee, and let the animated finger probe within.